2: Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
3: This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome, hello and welcome to show 272. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show, man. Oh, we've none other than Jack Vance as the main fiction today, Part one, we're going to play as a two-part story, The Moon Moth by Jack Vance. I'll tell you what's coming in today's show. We have a little song by Spider to kind of liven things up. Then we have Looking Back at the Genre History by Amy H. Sturgis. Then part one of Jack Vance's The Moon Moth. Oh, how cool is that? Wow, man. It just has been in everything. The best of Jack Vance, Galaxy Magazine, The Moon Moth and other stories. Oh, man. It's just like awesomeness. Big thank you to Adam as well for securing that. I didn't have the nerve to ask, he, ask Jack when I interviewed him if I could play a story. <laughs> so that's coming up in the day's show. I hope you'll stick around and enjoy it. Before we get into that, just want to mention there is a little fundraiser going around for J Lake, and I just realised again, J Lake has J science fiction writer. We've played a couple of stories. I think I've got a couple of stories in the bag off J Lake for Starship Silver. So but J Lake is going through a bit of a crappy time at the moment, and he's got can- a certain type of cancer. And there's a fund going around. and there's a kind of such a moving picture of Jay Lake, you know, I don't know if anyone's seen it, where he actually on his scalp, on his head, he's got tattooed. If you can read this, my cancer is back, you know, and obviously if he loses his hair again. And it's just, you know, he's battled this thing since, I think, 2008, you know, coming up in different guises. And he just keeps going and going. And, like, it's, it's just something, you know, I just feel like run running out of road now. But there's this kind of one bit of shining light where apparently they can do this sort of sequencing test, which will kind of maybe point the doctors in the right direction for certain drugs to, to to help Jay, you know, survive a little bit longer or, you know, as much as possible. But obviously these kind of, the sequencing thing, which all kind of in the g- genome and everything like that, cost, cost a bloody fortune. So there's a fundraiser going around, and I'll put a link onto it there, you know, if you can kind of pop over. And they've re- actually reached the goal, but there's so much more, you know, if the, you can do And you can help with JFOD to kind of get this fundraiser, you know, just into the kind of stratosphere. That would just be fantastic. Do you know what I mean? So, like I say, I'll put a link on, you know, even just pop over and have a read of it and just see what's going on there. You know what I mean? The, the, our community there, it's a little small niche thing. And it's nice to kind of, you know, when one of them will go down sort of things just to, to help out. And it would be lovely if, you know, you consider doing that. That would be fantastic. i like to say I'll put a link on to, to J's fundraising site. So just liven up the little, the show a, a little bit, you know, a couple of days ago, as you know, Spider Robinson, How to Write Science Fiction, coming up on the 26th of January. Please be there, that would be fantastic. But I got in touch with Spider late one night last week, just to kind of work out logistics and I didn't get in the house till about 10 o'clock after work and it was about half 10 by the time I sat down with a little whiskey a little quarter of, actually nearly a quarter of a bottle went by the time I finished on about an hour and a half chatting away but we're just kind of you know getting making sure everything's singing from the same hymn sheet and the sound quality's fine and you know in the kind of the kind of repertoire as we know a spider can sing you know not afraid to get his guitar out. Hey, Vicar. And he just, you know, started singing away because he's obviously gonna play some songs on the on the night. And he just sang the Beatles. And it was just like the Beatles and you know my family just will will love them. You know what I mean? It we kinda of went down to London. L- London <laughs> went to Liverpool last year. I might have been two years ago now. On this magical mystery tour just for like a weekend. And it's just fantastic. Do you know what I mean? Just excellent. And like I say, a Spider just sang this Beatles song, and it was excellent. And I thought, oh, I'd love to play it to you, just to kind of let you, you know, know what kind of what would be coming in the Spider Robinson, the the lecture, the talk, you know, because it's not all science fiction. It's you know, half and half. You know, talk about science fiction writing. But it's also, you know, about the man himself and some of the things, you know what I mean? Kind of he says just like living in poverty, you know what I mean? Like mouth-to-mouth kind of thing for a struggling science fiction writer, getting arrested back in the 60s. There's just all sorts of things he's going to talk about. And, you know, play some live music. And like say, I would honestly love you to, to come along and, and to listen to that. You know what I mean? That will be a rare treat indeed, you know what I mean? Spider-Robinson and there'll be some, God, there'll be some emotional stuff as well. I know he's talking about his wife, Jeannie, and you know, just what an inspiration Jeannie was, you know, to kind of his work and everything like that. So, as I was saying, though, we we sat down, you know, and had a little chat, and Spider whipped out his guitar and sang this. Hi, guitarie.
1: Michelle Abel. The words that go together well, my Michelle. I love you, I love you, I love you. That's all I want to say. Till I find a way, I will say the only words I know that you will understand. Michel, my belle, son des mondes, we vont très bien ensemble, très bien ensemble. And I will say the only words I know that you'll understand, my Michel. Da, da, da. Da, 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 That's short and sweet. Spider, that is fantastic. This is a whole round of applause there, sir. You know what was really cool? I, apparently, Sir Paul was given something called the Gershwin's Award for a lifetime excellence in music uh, by President Barack Obama. And he invited McCartney to the White House to receive this honor, the Gershwin's Award. I happened to recognize the room where the show took place because I've been in that room. I sat in that room and I watched First Lady Laura Bush interview Elmo of Sesame Street. <laughs> but, the, but the part that I really liked was McCartney, with a sly wink at the camera, said, now I'm taking a bit of a chance here. I might be the first man ever to be punched out by the President of the United States. But And he proceeded to sing Michelle, to Barack's wife, who was sitting right next to him, like a foot and a half away from McCartney. Michelle Obama just about lost it. You know, she, she's sitting there with her daughters beside her, and Paul McCartney starts singing that her song to her, you know?
3: There you go. What can I say? Please pop over to How to Write Science Fiction with Spider Robinson's link on the front of the website. It's not that long away, you know, at the 26th of January, 8 p.m. UK time. So it's plenty of time if you're there in America and the UK. It's a little bit early in Australia, yes, granted, and that side of the world. But, you know, we we try our best. (laughs) So let's kick off with Amy H. Sturgis, Ames, looking back at genre history.
2: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for another look back into genre history. Today, I would like to talk about one of the most famous science fiction works of the 19th century. In fact, it's one of the most famous works of science fiction, full stop. I'm talking about Edward Bellamy's Looking Backward. But in order to look backward at Looking Backward, we have to, in fact, look even farther backward than Looking Backward itself, if you follow me. I need to talk about a few works that led up to it before I can talk about the work itself, and then I need to talk about some of the works that it inspired. I often tell my students that science fiction is a conversation or a series of conversations, that ideas bounce against each other, that authors and readers and fans and works are in a discussion that bridges time, that bridges plays, that crosses national boundaries and generational divides. And I think that Looking Backward is a great work to talk about in this context because it was part of a conversation, and it certainly spawned a number of other conversations. And the fact that we're still talking about it and the questions it raises is a testament to the power of the work and to the larger conversation of which it is a part, So let me set the stage by saying that this work came out of a particular political moment and political debate about socialism. And here I'm just defining socialism as a system characterized by social ownership of the means of production and cooperative management of the economy. In the late 19th century, the ideas of Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels were being debated in a widespread way along with their concept that the working class or the proletariat would eventually rise up and overthrow its masters. So this was a revolutionary ideology based on class conflict. And that's what we often think of today as the way that the ideas of socialism began. But there was another socialism, a kinder and gentler socialism, if you will, often termed utopian socialism – it fed into movements like the Fabians in England, and that's the group with which H.G. Wells was associated, and some of his great utopian works uh, was responding to and incorporating utopian socialism. This wasn't revolutionary, but evolutionary, based on the idea of applying the scientific method to human institutions, including institutions like the economy, In fact, it's sometimes called scientific socialism because it was tied into the idea that human institutions could be understood in the way that, say, uh, the human body could be understood or the natural world. This utopian socialism or scientific socialism was based on the idea that there would be gradual change and ordered progression based on rational control. And a number of thinkers like Charles Fourier and Robert Owen and even Christian socialists like the Hutterites were involved with this movement and even tried to create experimental societies and communities based on its precepts. Now, what's my point here? Everyone was talking about it and thinkers on both sides, or should I say all sides, since some people on the same side disagreed, used science fiction for part of their political debate. And they used the thought experiment represented by the what-if of science fiction in order to play out some of the ideas they were advocating or criticizing. H.G. Wells' When the Sleeper Wakes, for example, like many other works, were responding to this debate and to the most well-known novel that represented it looking backward. But in order to have Looking Backward, a couple of other novels had to be written first. One of these was The Great Romance by The Inhabitant. This was first published in New Zealand in 1881. The Inhabitant was a pseudonym common at the time for guidebooks in the United Kingdom and the United States, so it was a recognized pseudonym playing into the idea that whoever was writing this was a guide. A tour guide, if you will. The hero of the novel is a man named John Hope, who was a prominent mid-20th century scientist who had developed new power sources that enabled air travel and eventually space exploration. In the year 1950... Now, remember, the book was published in 1881. In the year 1950, Hope had taken a sleeping potion from a chemist that put him into a long, suspended animation as part of a planned experiment. When he wakes up, it's the year 2143, and he is met by the chemist's descendants. He discovers that telepathy is common— And this telepathy has led to an entirely new social order. One of the biggest changes is that people are more moral. Why are they more moral? Well, if they had evil motives or criminal plans or malevolent intentions of one kind or another, everybody would know about it because everybody was telepathic. And this openness the inability to conceal actually makes us better people. Now, there are people, particularly those who are not telepathic, who are unable or unwilling to adapt to this new order and the ethical climate that's come from it. And they essentially choose a kind of self-imposed exile. They leave civilization for more primitive lands, And since most telepaths prefer to stay, that means that these outlying lands are places where telepathic power is not the dominant force. The hero ends up going with his new friends, one of whom has developed telekinesis, to Venus. And it's interesting because every attempt is made to be scientific in the description of space travel. It's science fiction, good science fiction, in a lot of ways. But the one that I'm interested in most here is that you have a character moving forward into a future that seems better than the present. And, of course, this is what will happen in Looking Backward. Another book I'd like to mention as a stage setter or an ancestor text of Looking Backward is The Diophys, or A Far Look Ahead by John McNee, who was writing as Ismar Thusson in this case. Scottish-American author, and the book came out in 1883, two years after The Great Romance. MacNeigh's a really fascinating guy. He lived from 1836 to 1909. He was born in Scotland and educated at the University of Glasgow. He received an honorary MA degree from Yale University in 1874. He was a professor at the University of North Dakota for two decades. He was hired as a professor of English, French, and German in 1886, and he retired as professor of French and Spanish, both languages and literature. In 1906, the University of North Dakota's McNee Hall was named after him. But just because he was a literary and linguistic kind of guy, don't think he didn't have some scientific credibility. He published A Treatise on the Theory and Solution of Algebraic Equations in 1876 and Elements of Geometry, Plane and Solid in 1895. So this was a real Renaissance man. In his story... The narrator undergoes an episode of mesmerism or hypnosis. You may remember that was a big ingredient in a lot of science fiction works uh, going all the way back to Poe in the 19th century. He wakes up in the far future, and suddenly he has passed from the 19th century to, get this, the 96th century. Culture shock? Yeah. With the help of his friendly guide, the protagonist explores a place called Nuore, which is the future incarnation of what is today New York City. A lot of the details in the world he describes would look very familiar to us today. For example, he predicts that paved roads of the future will have little white lines running down the center to divide the traffic flow. He describes a global telephone network, electric cars, and rooftop gardens on high-rise buildings. He also describes calculating machines that do the work that today falls to computers. And he describes recorded lectures by college professors. Ha! Who would have thought of that? And other developments that also have come to pass in the ensuing two centuries. We didn't have to wait until the 96th century for them to come along. What I think is most interesting about this book is the cool approach that it gives to the issue of identity. The narrator is, in his own perception, a time traveler from the 19th century, but he's known by the other characters as a friend and relative named Ismar Thusen. Remember, that's the name under which the author published the book. And this guy has developed a mental illness as far as they're concerned. He suffers from the delusion that he's a time traveler from the 19th century. He isn't actually one. And everyone explains the features of their world as not being tour guides showing this time traveler what's going on, but rather as a kind of therapy meant to restore thusen to his proper wits. Eventually, Thucin ends up in a romantic relationship with Riva Diatha, and they're trying to figure out his situation. Is he a time traveler? Is he just a crazy guy? And they end up interpreting his situation in terms of reincarnation. So you've got three ideas now about who this person is, this main character. But in the end, he goes over Niagara Falls, and he ends up back in the 19th century. And so we are convinced, at the close of the novel, he was, in fact, the time traveler he originally believed himself to be. It's a very interesting psychological twist to what is a very good early science fiction novel. Don't worry, I haven't forgotten. We're here to talk about Edward Bellamy. There are connections we can draw between MacNeil's Diathus and Bellamy's Looking Backward. The authors, in fact, corresponded about their ideas before their books were published. Both books send their first-person protagonist to the future via hypnotism. Both of these heroes were, in their own time, in love with a woman named Edith, And each in the future falls in love with a descendant of that Edith. And both of the novels predict some similar technological developments in the future. Both works are socialist, but Bellamy's politics are much more front and center than McNeese. They're known to have corresponded about their ideas prior to the publication of the books, as I mentioned before... And it seems that in the concluding chapter of the Diathus, Edward Bellamy is the figure identified by McNee simply as E. All right, enough already, Sturgis. Let's get on to looking backward. Okay, so according to Eric Fromm of the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory, Looking Backward, 1887 to 2000, is one of the most remarkable books ever published in America. Okay, it's really not. I hate to break it to you, but it isn't. Remember how back in Starship Sofas Arl Delights show number 258, I praised Jane C. Loudon Webb's The Mummy as being significant because it backgrounded the world building in favor of foregrounding the plot – that was happening early in the nineteenth century. And this is not something Bellamy does. He really takes the tour guide idea um, to its limit and just, you know, points around and says, on the left we have here and on the right we have here. And it doesn't make for very compelling reading. In fact, back in my graduate school days, I was a teaching assistant and the professor assigned Looking Backward in class as a as a history text and I was asking the students, you know, what they thought of it. And one of the students raised his hand and said, "Dude really loved escalators." And that's sort of the takeaway from the book. He gets so excited by the things he's describing, he sort of forgets to tell a story. But that said, the novel's importance cannot be overstated. It was the third largest bestseller of its time. I don't mean best-selling science fiction work, I mean bestseller, uh after Uncle Tom's Cabin and Ben-Hur, A Tale of the Christ. It was translated into 20 languages, and it's one of the very few books ever published. That created almost immediately, once it appeared, a political mass movement. In the United States alone, over 162 Bellamy clubs sprang up simply to discuss and try to put into action the book's ideas. In other words... The novel drew such a clear picture of this utopian world of the future that readers were getting together trying to figure out how we get from here to there. Because of the novel's commitment to the nationalization of private property, the political movement that sprang out of it came to be known as nationalism, with a capital N – And that's very confusing because that's not the political concept of nationalism with a small n, but you see what I mean there. The novel also inspired several utopian communities, communes, trying to put into practice what was being described in the novel. In the novel, Julian West is a young U.S. citizen who, towards the end of the 19th century, falls into a deep hypnosis-induced sleep, and he wakes up 130 years later. He finds himself in the very same location, that is, Boston, Massachusetts, but in a totally changed world. It is the year 2000, and while he was sleeping, the United States had been transformed into a socialist utopia. Bellamy wrote, and I quote, When men came to realize the greatness of the felicity which had befallen them, and that the change through which they had passed was not merely an improvement in details of their condition, but the rise of the race to a new plane of existence, with an illimitable vista of progress. There ensued an era of mechanical invention, scientific discovery, art, musical and literary productiveness, to which no previous age of the world offers anything comparable. I'll give you one example of the kinds of changes he foresaw— In chapter 19, for instance, he has the new legal system explained. Most civil suits have ended with the advent of socialism, but crime has become a medical issue. The idea of atavism, then current, is employed to explain crimes not related to inequality, because, of course, Bellamy thought that inequality would vanish with socialism— The idea of atavism being that there's something inborn, something that reverts back to previous generations to even an earlier iteration of the species that is sort of animalistic in its nature and it can take over. In other words, atavism is sort of a reversion back to an ancestral type. Those criminals who remain then are medically treated for this as someone with an affliction, Now, Bellamy, who lived from 1850 to 1898, was an embittered West Point reject, and he cultivated a lifelong passion for the Prussian military. And if you think about how planned that culture was, you can see how he comes out with a sort of planning culture as his ideal future world. On his deathbed, he whiled away the hours by arranging tin soldiers along the folds of his cover. As enlistees in the state's industrial army in the novel, all citizens of his utopia draw the same annual salary in the form of a credit card in which holes are punched to register purchases. The men march in mass rallies designed to encourage solidarity with the nation as a whole, and the nation itself has become a family, a vital union, a common life, he calls it, or more succinctly, truly a fatherland. So you can see a sort of militaristic vibe happening here as well. As tedious as the novel can be, part of this is Bellamy's fault, and part of it's sort of the problem inherent in the idea of a utopia, because it's kind of hard to get conflict when everything is perfect. He still gets bonus points for a sense of wonder, or as some science fiction critics like to put it, sense of wonder, with lines like this, quote, With a tear for the dark past, turn we then to the dazzling future, and, unveiling our eyes, press forward. The long and weary winter of the race is ended. Its summer has begun. Humanity has burst the chrysalis. The heavens are before it. Pretty bold words. Now, one of the reasons this novel is so important is because of the other works it inspired— Some of these were supportive of Bellamy's vision, and some were critical of it. And those works are going to be the subject of my next looking back into genre history. I look forward to joining you with part two very soon. Thank you.
3: Amy, thank you so much. And honestly, a big thank you. I sent Amy some copy text over just the other, the other day, just to kind of, Amy's so clever, man. It's just scary. And I'm so thick when it comes to writing. Do you know what I mean? Oh, Amy, you spruced up them words lovely. Thank you so much. Next up is "The Moon Moth," part One by Jack Vance. Now this story and it was big hats off to Adam for acquiring this story They have got to work, and working round the clock to get stories now. And actually like I say, I didn't have the nerve to ask Jack Vance when I kind of interviewed him, and I think I've interviewed him twice. Lovely, lovely old fella, you know what I mean? ex, lovely guy. But you know, he's just some things you don't want to go there, you know, but Adam's straight in there. So this story came out in. 1961 galaxy magazine august 1961 and like i say it's just been in so much monsters it was repeating monsters in orbit 65 alpha 1 70 the science fiction hall of fame volume 2 1973 and it, like i say it just goes on and on and on the green magic i'm just picking ones here. Yeah, 1979 yes tomorrow's roads of science fiction 4 the Great Science Fiction Stories 23, The Legend Book of Science Fiction, Modern Classic Science Fiction, oh, The Jack Vance Treasury Science Fiction Hall of Fame, Volume 2B, Re-Edition. There's <laughs> just so much. Now, what I would suggest is you go and listen to the two interviews I did with Jack Vance as well, because, you know, we did one which was just fantastic. With Jack Vance and Frederick Paul, somewhere back in the archives of Starship Sova. that one's kicking around. But then, I, before even that, I spoke to Jack Vance and we had a little of an interview, you know, and it was... Down to his good son, John, who kind of helped out with all that. But I'll give you kind of the line or you know, the bio if you're not too sure of Jack Vance. Jack Vance, born in 1916, well, is a classic master of science fiction, fantasy, and mystery genres. His decades long career has earned him three Hugo Awards, a Nebula Award, a Jupiter Award, two World Fantasy Awards, including one for a lifetime achievement, and an Edgar Allan for Best Mystery Novel. He was named Science Fiction and Fancy Writers of America Grandmaster in 1997 and is described by the New York Times as one of American literature's most distinctive and undervalued voices. Vance grew up in California and developed a love of the outdoors and reading. In his early life, he picked fruit work as a bellhop in the cannery and ghost hulls in Pearl Harbor Navy shipyards, leaving a month before the attack. Oh man. He was educated at University of California, Berkeley, where a professor once offered up one of his science fiction stories with a scornful, we also have a piece of science fiction. Vance entered the Merchant Marine by memorising an eye chart to make up for a poor eyesight. He has a long love of jazz and is an amateur cornet, ukulele and kazooplier. His works include many elements of both sea and music. Since his first published story, The World Thinker, in 1945, Vance has written more than 60 books, The Dying Earth being one of the best-known set in the far-future Earth and the last red light of a dying sun. Legally blind since the 1980s, Vance completed his last novel, Lulu, in 2004, and an autobiography, This Is Me, in 2008. This fine story is narrated by Josh Roseman. As you know, Josh is breaking out into just starting on that little, them little rungs of the science fiction career. <laughs> Josh, what a, what a lovely narration. Thank you so much. I'll put a link on the Josh's site. Josh is not the trombonist. He'll have you know. Doing a few stories for Starship. He's getting a few published in the, well, in the, the great Asimovs. You know what I mean? And he's got a novel going around there as well. So have a look out for that. So, Starship Suva
0: is very proud to present The Moon Moth, by Jack Vance. The houseboat had been built to the most exacting standards of Cyrenees craftsmanship, which is to say, as close to the absolute as the human eye could detect. The planking of waxy dark wood showed no joints. The fastenings were platinum rivets, countersunk and polished flat. In style, the boat was massive, broad-beamed, steady as the shore itself, without ponderosity or slackness of line. The bow bulged like a swan's breast, the stem rising high, then crooking forward to support an iron lantern. The doors were carved from slabs of a mottled black-green wood. The windows were many-sectioned, paned with squares of mica, stained rose, blue, pale-green, and violet. The bow was given to service facilities and quarters for the slaves. Amidships were a pair of sleeping cabins, a dining saloon, and a parlor saloon, opening upon an observation deck at the stern. Such was Edward Thistle's houseboat. But ownership brought him neither pleasure nor pride. The houseboat had become shabby. The carpeting had lost its pile. The carved screens were chipped. The iron lantern at the bow sagged with rust. Seventy years ago, the first owner on accepting the boat, had honored the builder and had been likewise honored. The transaction, for the process represented a great deal more than simple giving and taking, had augmented the prestige of both. That time was far gone. The houseboat now commanded no prestige whatever. Edward Thistle, resident on Serene only three months, recognized the lack, but could do nothing about it. This particular houseboat was the best he could get. He sat on the rear deck, practicing the ganga, a zither-like instrument not much larger than his hand. A hundred yards inshore, surf defined a strip of white beach. Beyond rose jungle, with the silhouette of craggy black hills against the sky. Mirier shone hazy and white overhead, as if through a tangle of spiderweb. The face of the ocean pooled and puddled with mother-of-pearl luster. The scene had become as familiar, though not as boring, as the ganga at which he had worked two hours, twanging out the Sirinese scales, forming chords, traversing simple progressions. Now he put down the Ganga for the Zajinko. This a small sound box studded with keys, played with the right hand. Pressure on the keys forced air through reeds in the keys themselves, producing a concertina-like tone. Thistle ran off a dozen quick scales, making very few mistakes. Of the six instruments he had set himself to learn, the Zashinko had proved the least refractory, with the exception, of course, of the Heimerkin, that clacking, slapping, clattering device of wood and stone used exclusively with the slaves. Thistle practiced another ten minutes, then put aside the Zashinko. He flexed his arms, wrung his aching fingers— Every waking moment since his arrival had been given to the instruments. The Heimerkin, the Ganga, the Zashinko, the Kiev, the Strapan, the Gamapard. He had practiced scales in 19 keys and 4 modes, chords without number, intervals never imagined on the home planets. Trills, arpeggios, slurs, click stops, and nasalization— Damping and augmentation of overtones, vibratos and wolf tones, concavities and convexities, he practiced with a dogged, deadly diligence, in which his original concept of music as a source of pleasure had long become lost. Looking over the instruments, Thistle resisted an urge to fling all six into the Titanic. He rose to his feet, went forward through the parlor saloon, the dining saloon, along a corridor past the galley, and came out on the foredeck. He bent over the rail, peered down into the underwater pens where Toby and Rex, the slaves, were harnessing the drayfish for the weekly trip to Fan, eight miles north. The youngest fish, either playful or captious, ducked and plunged. Its streaming black muzzle broke water, and Thistle, looking into its face, felt a peculiar qualm. The fish wore no mask. Thistle laughed uneasily, fingering his own mask, the moon moth. No question about it, he was becoming acclimated to Serene. A significant stage had been reached when the naked face of a fish caused him shock. The fish were finally harnessed. Toby and Rex climbed aboard, red bodies glistening, black cloth masks clinging to their faces. Ignoring Thistle, they stowed the pen, hoisted anchor. The drayfish strained, the harness tautened, the houseboat moved north. Returning to the after-deck, Thistle took up the Strapan, this a circular sound box eight inches in diameter. Forty-six wires radiated from a central hub to the circumference, where they connected to either a bell or a tinkle bar. When plucked, the bells rang, the bars chimed. When strummed, the instrument gave off a twanging, jingling sound. When played with competence, the pleasantly acid dissonances produced an expressive effect. In an unskilled hand, the results were less felicitous, and might even approach random noise. The Strapan was Thistle's weakest instrument, and he practiced with concentration during the entire trip north. In due course, the houseboat approached the floating city. The drayfish were curbed, the houseboat warped to a mooring. Along the dock, a line of idlers weighed and gauged every aspect of the houseboat, the slaves, and Thistle himself according to Cyrene's habit. Thistle, not yet accustomed to such penetrating inspection, found the scrutiny unsettling, all the more so for the immobility of the masks. Self-consciously adjusting his own moon moth, he climbed the ladder to the dock. A slave rose from where he had been squatting, touched knuckles to the black cloth at his forehead, and sang on a three-tone phrase of interrogation, the moon moth before me possibly expresses the identity of Sir Edward Thistle. Thistle tapped the Heimerkin, which hung at his belt, and sang, I am Sir Thistle. I have been honored by a trust, sang the slave. Three days from dawn to dusk I have waited on the dock. Three nights from dusk to dawn I have crouched on a raft below this same dock. Listening to the feet of the nightmen, at last I behold the mask of Sir Thistle. Thistle evoked an impatient clatter from the Heimerkin. What is the nature of this trust? I carry a message, Sir Thistle. It is intended for you. Thistle held out his left hand, playing the Heimerkin with his right. Give me the message. Instantly, Sir Thistle. The message bore a heavy Superscription Emergency communication Rush Thistle ripped open the envelope The message was signed by Castel Cromartin, chief executive Of the Interworld Policies Board And, after the formal Salutation, read Absolutely urgent The following orders be executed Aboard, Carina, Cruzero, Destination fan, date of arrival January 10th, UT His notorious assassin, Haxo Angmark. Meet landing with adequate authority. effect detention at incarceration of this man. These instructions must be successfully implemented. Failure is unacceptable. Attention! Haxo Angmark is superlatively dangerous. Kill him without hesitation at any show of resistance. Thistle considered the message with dismay. In coming to Fan as consular representative, he had expected nothing like this. He felt neither inclination nor competence in the matter of dealing with dangerous assassins. Thoughtfully, he rubbed the fuzzy gray cheek of his mask. The situation was not completely dark. Esteban Rolver, director of the spaceport, would doubtless cooperate and perhaps furnish a platoon of slaves. More hopefully, Thistle reread the message. January 10th, Universal Time. He consulted a conversion calendar. Today, 40th. In the season of bitter nectar, Thistle ran his finger down the column, stopped. January 10th. Today. A distant rumble caught his attention. Dropping from the mist came a dull shape the lighter returning from contact with the Carina Cruzeiro. Thistle once more reread the note, raised his head, studied the descending lighter. Aboard would be Haxo Angmark. In five minutes, he would emerge upon the soil of Serene. Landing formalities would detain him possibly twenty minutes. The landing field lay a mile and a half distant, joined to fan by a winding path through the hills. Thistle turned to the slave. When did this message arrive? The slave leaned forward uncomprehendingly. Thistle reiterated his question, singing to the clack of the Heimerkin. This message you have enjoyed, the honor of its custody, how long? The slave sang. Long days have I waited on the wharf retreating only to the raft at the onset of dusk now my vigil is rewarded i behold sir thistle thistle turned away walked furiously up the dock ineffective inefficient sirenese why had they not delivered the message to his houseboat 25 minutes 22 now at the esplanade thistle stopped looked right left hoping for a miracle some sort of air transport to whisk him to the spaceport where with rolver's aid haxo angmark might still be detained or better yet a second message cancelling the first something anything but air cars were not to be found on serene and no second message appeared across the esplanade rose a meager row of permanent structures built of stone and iron and so proof against the efforts of the nightmen A hostler occupied one of these structures, and, as Thistle watched, a man in a splendid pearl and silver mask emerged, riding one of the lizard-like mounts of Serene. Thistle sprang forward. There was still time. With luck he might yet intercept Haxo Angmark. He hurried across the esplanade. Before the line of stalls stood the hostler, inspecting his stock with solicitude, occasionally burnishing a scale or whisking away an insect. There were five of the beasts in prime condition, each as tall as a man's shoulder, with massive legs, thick bodies, heavy, wedge-shaped heads. From their forefangs, which had been artificially lengthened and curved into near circles, gold rings depended. Their scales had been stained in diaper pattern, purple and green, orange and black, red and blue, brown and pink, yellow and silver." Thistle came to a breathless halt in front of the hostler. He reached for his kiev, then hesitated. Could this be considered a casual personal encounter? The Zashinko, perhaps? But the statement of his needs hardly seemed to demand the formal approach. Better the kiev, after all. He struck a chord, but by error found himself stroking the ganga. Beneath his mask, Thistle grinned apologetically. His relationship with this hostler was by no means on an intimate basis. He hoped that the hostler was of sanguine disposition, and in any event the urgency of the occasion allowed no time to select an exactly appropriate instrument. He struck a second chord, and, playing as well as agitation, breathlessness, and lack of skill avowed, sang out a request. "'Sir hostler, I have immediate need of a swift mount.' Allow me to select from your herd. The hostler wore a mask of considerable complexity, which Thistle could not identify. A construction of varnished brown cloth, pleated gray leather, and, high on the forehead, two large green and scarlet globes, minutely segmented, like insect eyes. He inspected Thistle a long moment. Then... Rather ostentatiously selecting his stimmick, executed a brilliant progression of trills and rounds of an import Thistle failed to grasp. The hostler sang, Sir Moonmoth, I fear that my steeds are unsuitable to a person of your distinction. Thistle earnestly twanged at the Ganga. By no means they all seem adequate. I am in great haste and will gladly accept any of the group. The hostler played a brittle, cascading crescendo. Sir Moonmoth, he sang, the steeds are ill and dirty. I am flattered that you consider them adequate to your use. I cannot accept the merit you offer me. And here, switching instruments, he struck a cool tinkle from his crodatch. Somehow I fail to recognize the boon, companion, and co-craftsman who accosts me so familiarly with his gunga. The implication was clear. Thistle would receive no mount. He turned, set off at a run for the landing field. Behind him sounded a clatter of the hostler's heimerkin, whether directed toward the hostler's slaves or toward himself, Thistle did not pause to learn. The previous consular representative of the home planets, Anne serene had been killed at Zundar. Masked as a tavern bravo, he had accosted a girl, beribboned, for the equinoctial attitudes, a solecism for which he had been instantly beheaded by a red demiurge, a sunsprite, sprite, and a magic hornet. Edward Thistle, recently graduated from the Institute, had been named his successor, and allowed three days to prepare himself. Normally, of a contemplative, even cautious disposition, Thistle had regarded the appointment as a challenge. He learned the Syranese language by subcerebral techniques, and found it uncomplicated. Then, in the Journal of Universal Anthropology, he read, The population of the titanic littoral is highly individualistic, Possibly in response to a bountiful environment which puts no premium upon group activity, the language reflecting this trait expresses the individual's mood and his emotional attitude toward a given situation. Factual information is regarded as a secondary concomitant. Moreover, the language is sung characteristically to the accompaniment of a small instrument. As a result, there is great difficulty in ascertaining fact from a native of Fan, or the Forbidden City Zundar. One will be regaled with elegant arias and demonstrations of astonishing virtuosity upon one or another of the numerous musical instruments. The visitor to this fascinating world, unless he cares to be treated with the most consummate contempt, must therefore learn to express himself after the approved local fashion. Thistle made a note in his memorandum book, Procure Small Musical Instrument, Together with directions as to use. He read on. There is everywhere and at all times a plenitude, not to say a superfluity, of food, and the climate is benign. With a fund of racial energy and a great deal of leisure time, the population occupies itself with intricacy, intricacy in all things, intricate craftsmanship, such as the carved panels which adorn the houseboats, intricate symbolism, as exemplified in the masks worn by everyone, the intricate, half musical language which admirably expresses subtle moods and emotions, and above all, the fantastic intricacy of interpersonal relationships prestige, face, mana, repute, glory, the Cyrenese word is strok. Every man has his characteristic strok, which determines whether, when he needs a houseboat, he will be urged to avail himself of a floating palace rich with gems, alabaster lanterns, peacock faience, and carved wood, or, grudgingly permitted, an abandoned shack on a raft. There is no medium of exchange on Cyrene. The single and sole currency is Strach." Thistle rubbed his chin and read further. Masks are worn at all times in accordance with the philosophy that a man should not be compelled to use a similitude foisted upon him by factors beyond his control, that he should be at liberty to choose that semblance most consonant with his stroke. In the civilized areas of Cyrene, which is to say the titanic literal, a man literally never shows his face, it is his basic secret. Gambling, by this token, is unknown on Cyrene it would be catastrophic to Cyrene's self-respect to gain advantage by means other than the exercise of strock. The word luck has no counterpart in the Cyrene's language. Thistle made another note. Get mask, museum, drama guild. He finished the article, hastened forth to complete his preparations, and the next day embarked aboard the Robert Astroguard for the first leg of the passage to Cyrene. The lighter settled upon the Cyrenese spaceport, a topaz disk isolated among the black, green, and purple hills. The lighter grounded, and Edward Thistle stepped forth. He was met by Esteban Rolver, the local agent for Spaceways. Rolver threw up his hands, stepped back. Your mask! he cried huskily. Where is your mask? Thistle held it up rather self-consciously. I wasn't sure. Put it on! said Rolver, turning away. He himself wore a fabrication of dull green scales, blue lacquered wood, black quills protruded at the cheeks, and under his chin hung a black-and-white checked pom-pom, the total effect creating a sense of sardonic, supple personality. Thistle adjusted the mask to his face, undecided whether to make a joke about the situation or to maintain a reserve suitable to the dignity of his post. "'Are you masked?' "'Rolver inquired over his shoulder. "'Thistle replied in the affirmative, "'and Rolver turned. "'The mask hid the expression of his face, "'but his hand unconsciously flicked "'a set of keys strapped to his thigh. "'The instrument sounded a trill of shock "'and polite consternation. "'You can't wear that mask,' sang Rolver. "'In fact, how, where did you get it?' "'It's copied from a mask "'owned by the Polypolis Museum,' "'declared Thistle stiffly.' "'I'm sure it's authentic,' Rolver nodded, his own mask more sardonic-seeming than ever. "'It's authentic enough. It's a variant of the type known as the Sea Dragon Conqueror and is worn on ceremonial occasions by persons of enormous prestige, heroes, master craftsmen, great musicians.' I wasn't aware. Rolver made a gesture of languid understanding. "'It's something you'll learn in due course.' Notice my mask. Today I'm wearing a tarn bird. Persons of minimal prestige, such as you, I, any other outworlder, wear this sort of thing. Odd, said Thistle, as they started across the field toward a low concrete blockhouse. I assumed that a person wore whatever he liked. Certainly, said Rolver. Wear any mask you like, if you can make it stick. This Tarnbird, for instance, I wear it to indicate that I presume nothing. I make no claims to wisdom, ferocity, versatility, musicianship, truculence, or any of a dozen other Syranese virtues. For the sake of argument, said Thistle, what would happen if I walked through the streets of Zundar in this mask? Rolver laughed, a muffled sound behind his mask. If you walked along the docks of Zundar, there are no streets. In any mask, you'd be killed within the hour. That's what happened to Benko, your predecessor. He didn't know how to act. None of us outworlders know how to act. In Fan, we're tolerated, so long as we keep our place. But you couldn't even walk around Fan in that regalia you're sporting now. Somebody wearing a fire snake or a thunder goblin. Masks, you understand, would step up to you. He'd play his crodatch, and if you failed to challenge his audacity with a passage on the Scarangi, a devilish instrument, he'd play his heimerkin, the instrument we use with the slaves. That's the ultimate expression of contempt. Or he might ring his dueling gong and attack you then and there. I had no idea that people here were quite so irascible, said Thistle in a subdued voice. Rolver shrugged and swung open the massive steel door to his office. Certain acts may not be committed on the concourse at Polypolis without incurring criticism. Yes, that's quite true, said Thistle. He looked around the office. Why the security, the concrete, the steel? Protection against savages, said Rolver. They come down from the mountains at night, steal what's available, kill anyone they find ashore. He went to a closet brought forth a mask. Here, use this moon moth. It won't get you in trouble. Thistle unenthusiastically inspected the mask. It was constructed of mouse-colored fur. There was a tuft of hair at each side of the mouth hole, a pair of feather-like antenna at the forehead, white lace flaps dangled beside the temples, and under the eyes hung a series of red folds, creating an effect at once lugubrious and comic. Thistle asked, Does this mask signify any degree of prestige? Not a great deal. After all, I'm consular representative, said Thistle. I represent the home planets, a hundred billion people. If the home planets want their representative to wear a sea dragon conqueror mask, they'd better send out a sea dragon conqueror type of man. I see, said Thistle in a subdued voice. Well, if I must... Ralver politely averted his gaze, while Thistle doffed the sea-dragon conqueror and slipped the more modest moon-moth over his head. "'I suppose I can find something just a bit more suitable in one of the shops,' Thistle said. "'I'm told a person simply goes in and takes what he needs, correct?' Rolver surveyed Thistle critically. "'That mask, temporarily at least, is perfectly suitable.' And it's rather important not to take anything from the shops until you know the Strock value of the article you want. The owner loses prestige if a person of low Strock makes free with his best work. Thistle shook his head in exasperation. Nothing of this was explained to me. I knew of the masks, of course, and the painstaking integrity of the craftsmen, but this insistence on prestige, Strock, whatever the word is... No matter, said Rolver. After a year or two, you'll begin to learn your way around. I suppose you speak the language. Oh, indeed, certainly. And what instruments do you play? Well, I was given to understand that any small instrument was adequate, or that I could merely sing. Very inaccurate. Only slaves sing without accompaniment. I suggest that you learn the following instruments as quickly as possible. The Heimerkin, for your slaves. The Ganga, for conversation between intimates, or one a trifle lower than yourself in Strach. The Kiev for casual, polite intercourse. The Zashinko, for more formal dealings. The Strapan, or the Krodach, for your social inferiors. In your case, should you wish to insult someone. The Gamapard, or the Double Comanthiel, for ceremonials. He considered a moment. The Krobarin, the Waterloot, and the slobo are highly useful also, but perhaps you'd better learn the other instruments first. They should provide at least a rudimentary means of communication. "'Aren't you exaggerating?' suggested Thistle. "'Or joking?' Ralver laughed his Saturnine laugh. (laughs) "'Not at all. First of all, you'll need a houseboat, and then you'll want slaves.' Rolver took Thistle from the landing field to the docks of Fan, a walk of an hour and a half along a pleasant path under enormous trees loaded with fruit, cereal pods, sacks of sugary sap. At the moment, said Rolver, there are only four outworlders in Fan, counting yourself. I'll take you to Wellabus, our commercial factor. I think he's got an old houseboat he might let you use. Cornelly Wellabus had resided fifteen years in Fan, acquiring sufficient stock to wear his South Wind mask with authority. This consisted of a blue disc inlaid with cabochons of lapis lazuli, surrounded by an aureole of shimmering snakeskin. Hardier and more cordial than Rolver, he not only provided thistle with a houseboat, but also a score of various musical instruments and a pair of slaves. Embarrassed by the largesse, Thistle stammered something about payment, but Wellibus cut him off with an expansive gesture. My dear fellow, this is serene. Such trifles cost nothing. But a houseboat. Wellibus played a courtly little flourish on his keeve. I'll be frank, Sir Thistle, the boat is old and a trifle shabby. I can't afford to use it. My status would suffer. A graceful melody accompanied his words. "'Status as yet need not concern you. "'You merely require shelter, comfort and safety from the night men. night men.' "'The cannibals who roam the shore after dark. "'Oh, yes, Sir Rover mentioned them. "'Horrible things. We won't discuss them.' "'A shuddering little trill issued from his keeve. "'Now as to slaves.' He tapped the blue disc of his mask with a thoughtful forefinger. Rex and Toby should serve you well. He raised his voice, played a swift clatter on the Heimerkin. Of an ex trabu. A female slave appeared, wearing a dozen tight bands of pink cloth and a dainty black mask sparkling with mother of pearl sequins. Fascu ets Rexe Toby. Rex and Toby appeared, wearing loose masks of black cloth. Russet jerkins, Wellabus addressed them with a resonant clatter of Heimerkin, enjoining them to the service of their new master on pain of return to their native islands. They prostrated themselves, sang pledges of servitude to Thistle in soft, husky voices. Thistle laughed nervously and essayed a sentence in the Cyrenese language Go to the houseboat, clean it well, bring aboard food. Toby and Rex stared blankly through the holes in their masks. Wellabus repeated the orders with Heimerkin accompaniment. The slaves bowed and departed. Thistle surveyed the musical instruments with dismay. I haven't the slightest idea how to go about learning these things. Wellabus turned to Rolver. What about Kershaw? Could he be persuaded to give Sir Thistle some basic instruction? Rolver nodded judicially. Kershaw might undertake the job. Thistle asked. Who is Kershaw? The fourth of our little group of expatriates, replied Wellabus, an anthropologist. You've read Zundar the Splendid, Rituals of Serene, The Faceless Folk? No? A pity. All excellent works. Kershaw is high in prestige, and I believe visits Zundar from time to time. Wears a cave owl, sometimes a star wanderer, or even a wise arbiter. He's taken to an equatorial serpent. Said Rolver, the variant with the gilt tusks. Indeed, marveled Welibus. Well, I must say he's earned it. A fine fellow, good chap indeed. And he strummed his zashinko thoughtfully. Three months passed. Under the tutelage of Matthew Kershaw, Thistle practised the Heimerkin, the Ganga, the Strapan, the Kiev, the Gummipard, and the zashinko. The others could wait, said Kershaw, until Thistle had mastered the six basic instruments. He lent Thistle recordings of noteworthy Syranese conversing in various moods and to various accompaniments, so that Thistle might learn the melodic conventions currently in vogue, and perfect himself in the niceties of intonation, the various rhythms, cross rhythms, compound rhythms, implied rhythms, and suppressed rhythms. Kershaw professed to find Syranese music a fascinating study. And Thistle admitted that it was a subject not readily exhausted. The quarter-tone tuning of the instruments admitted the use of 24 tonalities, which, multiplied by the five modes in general use, resulted in 120 separate scales. Kershaw, however, advised that Thistle primarily concentrate on learning each instrument in its fundamental tonality, using only two of the modes. With no immediate business at Fan except the weekly visits to Matthew Kershaw, Thistle took his houseboat eight miles south and moored it in the lee of a rocky promontory. Here, if it had not been for the incessant practicing, Thistle lived an idyllic life. The sea was calm and crystal clear. The beach, ringed by the gray, green, and purple foliage of the forest, lay close at hand if he wanted to stretch his legs. Toby and Rex occupied a pair of cubicles forward. Thistle had the after-cabins to himself. From time to time, he toyed with the idea of a third slave, possibly a young female, to contribute an element of charm and gaiety to the menage. But Kershaw advised against the step, fearing that the intensity of Thistle's concentration might somehow be diminished. Thistle acquiesced and devoted himself to the study of the six instruments. The days passed quickly. Thistle never became bored with the pageantry of dawn and sunset the white clouds and blue sea of noon the night sky blazing with the 29 stars of cluster si-1-715 the weekly trip to fan broke the tedium toby and rex foraged for food thistle visited the luxurious houseboat of matthew kershaw for instruction and advice then three months after thistle's arrival came the message completely disorganizing the routine haxo angmark assassin Agent provocateur, ruthless and crafty criminal, had come to Cyrene. Effect detonation and incarceration of this man, read the orders. Attention! Haxo Angmark is superlatively dangerous. Kill without hesitation. Thistle was not in the best of condition. He trotted fifty yards until his breath came in gasps, then walked. Through low hills crowned with white bamboo and black tree ferns, across meadows yellow with grass nuts, through orchards and wild vineyards. Twenty minutes passed. Twenty five minutes passed. Twenty five minutes. With a heavy sensation in his stomach, Thistle knew that he was too late. Haxo Angmark had landed and might be traversing this very road toward Fan. But along the way, Thistle met only four persons. "'a boy child in a mock-fierce Alk-Islander mask, two young women wearing the red bird and the green bird, "'a man masked as a forest goblin. "'Coming upon the man, Thistle stopped short. "'Could this be Angmark?' "'Thistle essayed a stratagem. "'He went boldly to the man, stared into the hideous mask. "'Angmark,' he called in the language of the home planets, "'you are under arrest!' The forest goblin stared uncomprehendingly, then started forward along the track. Thistle put himself in the way. He reached for his ganga, Then, recalling the hostler's reaction, instead struck a chord on the Zashinko. You travel the road from the spaceport, he sang. What have you seen there? The forest goblin grasped his hand bugle, an instrument used to deride opponents on the field of battle, to summon animals or, occasionally, to evince a rough and ready truculence. Where I travel and what I see are the concerns solely of myself. Stand back or I will walk upon your face. He marched forward, and had not Thistle leapt aside, the forest goblin might well have made good his threat. Thistle stood, gazing after the retreating back. Angmark? Not likely, with so sure a touch on the hand bugle. Thistle hesitated, then turned, and continued on his way. Arriving at the spaceport, he went directly to the office. The heavy door stood ajar. As Thistle approached, a man appeared in the doorway. He wore a mask of dull green scales, mica plates, blue lacquered wood, and black quills. The Tarn Bird. Sir Rolver, Thistle called out anxiously. Who came down from the Carina Cruzeiro? Rolver studied Thistle a long moment. Why do you ask? Why do I ask? demanded Thistle. You must have seen the spacegram I received from Castle Crow Martin. Oh, yes, said Rolver. Of course, naturally. It was delivered only half an hour ago, said Thistle bitterly. I rushed out as fast as I could. Where is Angmark? In fan, I assume, said Rolver. Thistle cursed softly. Why didn't you delay him? Rolver shrugged. I had neither authority, inclination, nor the capability to stop him. Thistle fought back his annoyance. In a voice of studied calm, he said, On the way, I passed a man in a rather ghastly mask, saucer eyes, red wattles A forest goblin, said Rolver. Hangmark brought the mask with him. But he played the hand bugle, Thistle protested. How could Angmark? He's well acquainted with Serene. He spent five years here in Fan. Thistle grunted in annoyance. Cromartin made no mention of this. It's common knowledge, said Rolver with a shrug. He was commercial representative before Wellibus took over. Were he and Wellibus acquainted? Rolver laughed shortly. Naturally, but don't suspect poor Wellabus of anything more venal than juggling his accounts. I assure you, he's no consort of assassins. Speaking of assassins, said Thistle, do you have a weapon I might borrow? Rolver inspected him in wonder. You came out here to take Angmark bare-handed." I had no choice, said Thistle. When Cromartin gives orders, he expects results. In any event, you were here with your slaves. Don't count on me for help, Rolver said testily. I wear the tarn bird and make no pretensions of valor, but I can lend you a power pistol. I haven't used it recently. I won't guarantee its charge. Rolver went into the office and a moment later returned with the gun. What will you do now? Thistle shook his head wearily. I'll try to find Angmark and Fan or Mighty Head for Zundar. Rolver considered. Angmark might be able to survive in Zundar, but he'd want to brush up on his musicianship. I imagine he'll stay in Fan a few days. But how can I find him? Where should I look? That I can't say, replied Wolver. You might be safer not finding him. Angmark is a dangerous man. Thistle returned to Fan the way he had come where the path swung down from the hills into the esplanade a thick-walled Pisa de terre building had been constructed the door was carved from a solid black plank the windows were guarded by infoliated bands of iron this was the office of cornley Wellabus, commercial factor importer and exporter thistle found Wellabus sitting at his ease on the tiled veranda wearing a modest adaptation of the waldemar mask he seemed lost in thought and might or might not have recognized Thistle's moon moth. In any event, he gave no signal of greeting. Thistle approached the porch. Good morning, Sir Wellabus. Wellibus nodded abstractedly, and said in a flat voice, plucking at his crodatch, Good morning. Thistle was rather taken aback. This was hardly the instrument to use toward a friend and fellow outworlder, even if he did wear the moon moth. Thistle said coldly, May I ask how long you have been sitting here? Wellibus considered half a minute, and now when he spoke, he accompanied himself on the more cordial Krabarin. But the recollection of the Krodach cord still wrangled in Thistle's mind. I've been here fifteen or twenty minutes. Why do you ask? I wonder if you noticed a forest goblin pass. Wellibus nodded. He went on down the esplanade. Turned into that first mask shop, I believe. Thistle hissed between his teeth. This would naturally be Angmark's first move. I'll never find him once he changes masks, he muttered. Who is this forest goblin? asked Wellibus, with no more than casual interest. Thistle could see no reason to conceal the name. A notorious criminal, Haxo Angmark. Haxo Angmark? croaked Wellabus, leaning back in his chair. You're sure he's here? Reasonably sure. Wellabus rubbed his shaking hands together. This is bad news. Bad news indeed. He's an unscrupulous scoundrel. You knew him well? As well as anyone. Wellabus was now accompanying himself with the keeve. He held the post I now occupy. I came out as an inspector and found that he was embezzling some 4,000 UMIs a month. I'm sure he feels no great gratitude toward me. Wellibus glanced nervously up the esplanade. I hope you catch him. I'm doing my best. He went into the mask shop, you say? I'm sure of it. Thistle turned away. As he went down the path, he heard the black plank door thud shut behind him. He walked down the esplanade to the maskmaker's shop, paused outside as if admiring the display. A hundred miniature masks carved from rare woods and minerals, dressed with emerald flakes, spiderweb silk, wasp wings, petrified fish scales, and the like. The shop was empty except for the mask maker, a gnarled, knotty man in a yellow robe wearing a deceptively simple universal expert mask fabricated from over 2,000 bits of articulated wood. Thistle considered what he would say, how he would accompany himself, then entered. The mask-maker, noting the moon moth and Thistle's diffident manner, continued with his work. Thistle, selecting the easiest of his instruments, stroked his strapan, possibly not the most felicitous choice, for it conveyed a certain degree of condescension, Thistle tried to counteract this flavor by singing in warm, almost effusive tones, shaking the strapan whimsically when he struck a wrong note. A stranger is an interesting person to deal with. His habits are unfamiliar. He excites curiosity. Not twenty minutes ago, a stranger entered this fascinating shop to exchange his drab forest goblin for one of the remarkable and adventurous creations assembled on the premises. The mask-maker turned Thistle a side glance, and without words he played a progression of chords on an instrument Thistle had never seen before, a flexible sack gripped in the palm, with three short tubes leading between the fingers. When the tubes were squeezed almost shut an air forced through the slit, an oboe-like tune ensued. To Thistle's developing ear, the instrument seemed difficult, the mask-maker expert, and the music conveyed a profound sense of disinterest. Thistle tried again, laboriously manipulating the Strapan. He sang, To an outworlder on a foreign planet, the voice of one from his home is like water to a wilting plant, a person who could unite two such persons might find satisfaction in such an act of mercy. The mask-maker casually fingered his own strapon, and drew forth a set of rippling scales, his fingers moving faster than the eyes could follow. He sang in the formal style. An artist values his moments of concentration... He does not care to spend time exchanging banalities with persons of, at best, average prestige. Thistle attempted to insert a counter-melody, but the mask-maker struck a new set of complex chords, whose portent evaded Thistle's understanding and continued, Into the shop comes a person who evidently has picked up for the first time an instrument of unparalleled complication, for the execution of his music is open to criticism. He sings of homesickness and longing for the sight of others like himself. He dissembles his enormous stroke behind a moon moth for he plays the strapon to a master craftsman and sings in a voice of contemptuous raillery. The refined and creative artist ignores the provocation. He plays a polite instrument, remains noncommittal, and trusts that the stranger will tire of his sport and depart. Thistle took up his keeve. The noble mask-maker completely misunderstands me. He was interrupted by the staccato rasping of the mask-maker's strapon. The stranger now sees fit to ridicule the artist's comprehension. Thistle scratched furiously at his strapon. To protect myself from the heat, I wander into a small and unpretentious mask shop. The artisan, though still distracted by the novelty of his tools... Gives promise of development, he works zealously to perfect his skill, so much so that he refuses to converse with strangers no matter their need. The mask-maker carefully laid down his carving tool. He rose to his feet, went behind a screen, and shortly returned wearing a mask of gold and iron, with simulated flames licking up from the scalp. In one hand he carried a scaranyi, in the other a scimitar. He struck off a brilliant series of wild tones and sang. Even the most accomplished artist can augment his stroke by killing sea monsters, nightmen, and importunate idlers. Such an occasion is at hand. The artist delays his attack exactly ten seconds because the offender wears a moon moth. He twirled his scimitar, spun it in the air. Thistle desperately pounded the strapan. Did a forest goblin enter the shop? Did he depart with a new mask? Five seconds have elapsed, sang the mask maker in steady, ominous rhythm. Thistle departed in frustrated rage. He crossed the square, stood looking up and down the esplanade. Hundreds of men and women sauntered along the docks, or stood on the decks of their houseboats, each wearing a mask chosen to express his mood, prestige, and special attributes, and everywhere sounded the twitter of musical instruments.
3: There you go, don't forget, listen out for Moon Moth Part 2, coming up next week. Well, that is today's show. Big thank you to Jack Vance for allowing Starship over to play that. Don't forget, copyright is Jack Vance. And Josh, thank you so much. Big thank you to Adam as well. And don't forget, Amy as well. Amy, brilliant, thank you so much. Please, if you can, pop over to the Jake Lake fundraising. That would be fantastic. Grant, thank you for pointing that out to us. That will be, that's lovely, thank you so much. And don't forget my little fundraiser to help Starships so keep going. How to write science fiction with Spider Robinson. Until next week, just like to say, good night from me.
2: Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment. Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of... ...sofar, Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for Airlock will be opened
1: in three, two, one...